Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13. I was just thinking about one of the phrases from that song, uh, the word delight there, and thinking about that, and it kind of made me think about what we've been doing here going through the book of Acts. And uh, one of the neat things for me is I've read through the book of Acts before. I've studied it to some degree, but not to the degree that I would to teach it. And that's, you know, that's typical. I was looking at, I got a folder of everything I've ever taught on in 30 some odd years, and I have it all sorted by book names. So I can go, I can see if I just open up my folder, I can see all the books I've taught on. And so those, those are the ones that I've really studied in depth. And then there's others that I'm familiar with and I've gone through, but I haven't really put such intense study into it. So this is the first time I've put as much energy into the book of Acts because I'm teaching it. And so I've had a renewed appreciation for it and excitement as I've gone through it. And the reason is, and this partly goes back to something Dave Malin had said to me one day, you notice we spend a fair amount of time in the Old Testament and the New Testament and we kind of go back and forth and that's partly because of my conviction, one, that I'm supposed to teach the whole counsel of God's word, but two, because it really is one big story. And so Dave kind of came up to me one time after a service when we were meeting in the other building and he said, I, I get it. I get it today. It's all one big story. And um, so what's been neat about this, I just delight as I look through this and I'm seeing God's plan unfold. It's one thing to have a prophecy in the Old Testament and see it fulfilled. But what we see here is God unfolding this redemptive plan. And we actually watch it, not in real time, but we're kind of seeing the, the historical view of it here. And... Um, so I've been kind of excited to see that as I was as we were singing this morning. I just kind of thought, man, it's been cool to see how each piece falls into place as God does what God planned to do. And you know, over the last couple of weeks, we began to see how God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations would ultimately be carried out. You know, we, we know that He had planned on saving the Gentiles, not just the Jews. But I'll say it maybe this way: but the part about the Gentiles didn't quite come until the birth of the church. And so there's these steps that God has gone through and, and you know, even the 400 years uh, in Egypt all played a part in God's plan and it's been this sort of slow, methodical plan and purpose to redeem mankind and to, to work out his redemptive plan. His plan was always to save not just the Jews, Gentiles as well, to make salvation available to all of his creation in terms of his human beings here. We saw our first glimpse of what he was going to do with the Gentiles when Peter went and talked with Cornelius and preached the gospel and Cornelius and all of his family and those around him were saved. We then saw it kind of branch out a little further when we saw two men come from Cyprus and Cyrene and they went to or went and started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. We saw the explosion that happened with the Gentile converts among the Roman Empire. So we see all of this kind of working itself out. We think about that church in Antioch. I've mentioned this a couple of times now. The first real solidly Gentile church in a Gentile city. They were personally mentored by Paul and Barnabas. We saw the Holy Spirit was given to them. They had their own prophets and their own teachers. They were listening to the Holy Spirit. They were praying and fasting and looking for His direction and trying to know what to do and where to go. And out of that came this decision to send Paul and Barnabas out. And we talked about that briefly last week 
where they're willing to give up their best. Send out Paul and Barnabas. And we see that actually take place today. We're going to look at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Paul had made and Barnabas had made Antioch the center, the home base of their ministry. You might consider it their home church. And they would go out from there and they would travel and then they would come back. And they would go on another journey and they would come back. On another journey and come back. So today is the first one of those. And there's going to be some interesting things that we can pull out of this. And one of which is just looking at how Paul presented the gospel. And I believe that it might serve us well to see how he did that. And it might benefit us here as well. So let's take a look at this. Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey. It starts in chapter 13. We're going to read um, verse 13 to start with. So chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Their primary destination when they left was a city named Pisidian Antioch. It's in the Roman providence of Galatia. It's different than the Antioch where they were staying. Now Luke doesn't mention this here, but getting from Cyprus to Pisidian Antioch was an arduous journey. It was not an easy journey to make. The first 200 miles of the trip involved taking a boat from Cyprus, because it was an island, into the mainland, and then walking seven miles to a place called Persia, or Perga, some people pronounce it. There were no passenger boats in Paul's day. They couldn't get on Carnival Cruise Line or a ferry. What they had to do is they had to contract with a cargo ship. You can imagine what that must be like. I think Amy might have mentioned, I've mentioned before, when I work out in the morning, I like watching Little House on the Prairie. Call me, whatever you want to call me, but I like watching Little House on the Prairie. It's wholesome, it's good, I like the characters, you know, and I just stream it and I work out for a half hour each morning. I lift weights one day, I do the treadmill the next day, and I can watch half a show. I like that. And what's interesting is I've seen a number of times where Charles has had to travel on just a freight train. Not a fancy luxury train. He'd just crawl up there and he'd sit with the fire logs or something else. And that's what I envision here with, with Paul and Barnabas. They would have to find a cargo ship to travel on. And we can imagine those things are not very comfortable. Many of you might have seen the picture this week from the, the cargo ship with the 800 or so um, Afghans all crammed into a military cargo ship. They're not being served nice warm towels and drinks and a bag of peanuts like we'd expect on Southwest. And so that's what they had to start with. That first part of the trip was probably an uncomfortable journey in a cargo ship. Now once they got to Perga, they had to travel up to Pisidian Antioch, which was another hundred miles. And this is where the real fun begins. By most accounts, the journey would have been an extremely difficult and tiresome one because it involved walking uphill the whole entire direction through some of the most rugged terrain you can imagine. In fact, when Alexander the Great tried to, when he worked on conquering some of the area that he went to, he had to go through the Tarsus Mountains, which is what Paul and Barnabas had to do here. And he said it was the most difficult terrain that he had ever encountered on any of his campaigns. In fact, it may very well have been the reason why some of his campaigns had failed. They just couldn't make it through the mountains with the equipment and the other things that they needed. 
It was extremely difficult to navigate. And so Paul and Barnabas would make this 100-mile trip. It started at sea level, uphill, and went up to about 3,600 feet. Would have taken a number of months, most likely, to make that trip. It would have been extremely difficult, tiresome. I will jokingly say that might be why John Mark might have decided to abandon the trip. We're never told why John Mark abandoned he just went back home. I don't know. If it were me, I would have gone. I don't think so. So again, I say that somewhat jokingly, but it was extremely difficult, but they decided to do it anyway. You know, we just kind of, we don't realize sometimes what it took for Paul to go on his missionary journeys. It wasn't like us just hopping in the minivan and driving to Wisconsin for a week. This was difficult. It involved mostly walking or riding in a cargo ship. It's not comfortable. And so that's how this first missionary journey began. Imagine the commitment that must have taken to do that. And it was all somewhat new because they were going out primarily on a Gentile journey, in a Gentile territory. So after arriving at the city of Antioch, the first thing they do is they visit a synagogue. Look at the verses 14 and 15. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading the Law of the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. As we learned last week, this was Paul's pattern. He would go to the synagogue first, because he said the gospel would go first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. It was a pattern. We see that in how God operated himself, called the nation of Israel first. Didn't get to the Gentiles, if you will, until the church. Paul did this as well. Always went to the synagogue first, preached to the Gentile or to the the, um, Jews first. Oftentimes as they would reject him, he would then turn to the Gentiles. So here they are. They chose to do it on the Sabbath, and why might that be? Well, it's the most populous day in the synagogue. So they went in on the Sabbath. They sat down. They listened, and they were invited to preach. I found some interesting material. I thought this just might be um, some color for you today to give you an idea of what might have taken place at this synagogue service. I'll give you a description here from one site I found. The service began with several blessings offered to the Lord. The congregation would recite the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So they would start the service with that. They would then bring out the Torah, the scrolls from the Old Testament. They would basically read several passages from that. Oftentimes, they settled on the number seven. Different people were scheduled to read different portions of the text each week. The readings were determined according to a set schedule. The reader would have no choice. He would just be told, you're reading this this morning. After they would finish reading the Torah, they would read a section from the prophets. Then... After all the readings were done, a short sermon would be offered. Often the person who read the Torah was the one who would then do the sermon, but it was pretty common if there were visitors in the congregation, in the synagogue that morning, oftentimes they would be invited to speak as a form of common courtesy. And so that's actually what happens here. Paul and Barnabas go in, they enjoy the service, they're waiting, and when it gets to that section where somebody's to stand up and deliver a message, the leader of the synagogue says, oh, we see these two young gentlemen here. Visitors, do you have something to say? Share it with the body here. 
There are actually some groups that practice this today. I know some old order brethren. That's what they do. They show up for service, three-hour service, by the way. Show up, and they just say, Brother, you're teaching today. And he's expected to whip out his Bible and begin to teach. And maybe somewhere right in the middle of that, they go, Okay, brother, you're done. You're up next. And then he stands up and teaches. So I'm looking at Nate here, and I'm thinking, Nate, you want (laughs) to... So anyway, Paul and Barnabas get, get asked to stand up and to deliver a message. Verse 16 says that Paul did just that. Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and he begins to talk. And what we're going to see here is that Paul, like we would expect, takes an opportunity. He's not going to let it go to waste. He's going to preach the gospel. So, he preaches the gospel here. I want you to turn, before we look at his message here, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says something that's rather interesting, it's often misinterpreted. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, listen to the first five verses here. Paul says, or wrote this to the Corinthians, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now many oftentimes misunderstand Paul's words there and believe that Paul wasn't any good at giving a speech or wasn't any good at delivering a message. We know that's not true because we have his stuff right here. Not only his sermons from the book of Acts, but we have the letters that he wrote. He was intelligent. He was educated in the the finest schools underneath Gamiel, one of the finest theologians of his day. So what did he mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 there? What he basically meant, he was referring to this oration that was common among Greek philosophers. Oftentimes they emphasized style over substance. Fancy words that were designed to manipulate emotions and convince people of things. Content oftentimes was of no real value. It was the way you said it. It reminds me, I think I've shared this before when we've talked about this. There was a, um, I think it's called, is it called The Knight's Tale? Um, it's an old jousting movie, kind of a comedy type thing. And they would have these guys, when they would introduce the jousters, they would all have their, their um, guys that would stand up and announce them, but they would go through this amazing, over-the-top description of their jouster. And that was almost as entertaining as the jousting, and people would look forward to it. And some of the men who would do that, they would travel with their jouster, they became known for what they did. And in some respects, sometimes people would go to see just that over the jousting. But the movie portrays one guy who does that. And it is just so over the top. And you can see the crowd just getting all around. Well, that's kind of the picture you would get from Greek rhetoric. As they would stand up there in all their pomp and circumstance and their fancy clothes and they would deliver these amazing speeches. And whether it was true or not, it didn't matter. What mattered is could you convince somebody? And so that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He's like, I didn't come to you that way. I just came telling you the truth about Jesus Christ. I think if we look around the church today, some of those who get the most attention in their teaching, not always, but some, it's all fluff. You know? Sometimes the dog and pony show that goes along with it. There's some great teachers out there. 
My favorite are the ones who stick to the word, that don't get caught up in all the flash and flare. And they're great orators. They're nice, good people to listen to, you know. What I'm hinting at are some of those that get up and dance and prance around the stage and, you know, right down to their clothes and how they look. You know, I was watching something from a, a video. There's a documentary coming out about Hillsong. And um, Hillsong wasn't happy with this documentary because it doesn't make them look very favorable. And um, But I remember watching one snippet where, I don't know, it was one of their music directors or somebody kind of, he and his wife kind of come on and um, he's got all the garb on. And he even says, I'm wearing all of the Hillsong garb. I got my skinny pants. And he actually says, I got my skinny pants. I've got my leather jacket. I've got my fedora. And you just it just drips with... Really? You think that's what it's about? And then his wife chimes in, and you got the hot wife on your side. You know? It's all flash and flare. And Paul says, I didn't come to you that way. So how did Paul come to them? We see an example of it today in this text. We're going to look through Paul's sermon here. And this might become a little bit academic in some respects, but I think there's value in us looking at it. Because Paul actually follows a model that was used among the Greeks. And what I mean by that is, Paul understood his culture and the people around him. And he wasn't afraid to take advantage of their style of oration and use it, because that was what they did. It would be much like us going into university and following the rules to write a paper. Not just doing our own thing, right? And so Paul actually does that. And it's actually kind of interesting... Um, there's value in it, and I think it might also give us kind of a lesson for ourselves. It might help us with how we are able to present the gospel. So there's five parts, typically, to a Greek message. And Paul actually follows those here. The first is basically what we would refer to here as the introduction. Look at verse 16. Paul actually stands up, it says, and he motioned with his hand, and he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now, when it came to Greek speech, there actually was a name for this. It's called the exordium. What does that sound like? An exhortation of some kind. It was generally expected that you would greet your audience when you would talk to them. That's exactly what Paul does here. He says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, meaning the the God-fearing Greeks that were there, the introduction also generally included some type of exhortation to listen. Listen to me. And that's exactly what we see here with Paul. What does he say? You you fear God. Listen. You notice too that he motions with his hand. How many of you have seen statues, Greek Greek statues of um, philosophers? And oftentimes they display them with their hand up. Because hand motions were often common as well. And so we see that with Paul here. He just stands up, motions with his hand, calls attention, addresses them, and then says, listen to me. I've got something to say. So that's his introduction. He does what Greeks did. The second thing he does here is he recounts the history of God's redemptive plan. Look at verses 17 through 25. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years he put up with them, or another way to translate that, most translations translate that as he cared for them in the wilderness. 
When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. When these things have, or when he, um, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, and will do all that, or all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to a promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? Or who do you, yeah, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold what is coming after me, the sandals of whom feet I am not worthy to untie. It was common in Greek rhetoric to have a second part in the speech that they actually called the narratio. What does that sound like? It's a narration. This is where the speaker would lay the foundation, sort of put something in place that he could build upon as he goes through the speech. In this case, Paul was preparing to reveal how Jesus was the promised Messiah and a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. So he goes through, if you notice here, the history of Israel. Now remember, there are Jews here, this is a synagogue, They would have been familiar with it. So Paul reminds them of the history of Israel and all that God had basically done. He gives this brief history. God had come to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made them a great nation over 400 years while they were in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. He cared for them in the wilderness. He gave them judges and kings, including David, a man after his own heart, somebody who would do his will. Then, as promised... And after John the Baptist pointed the way, God brought them the Savior Jesus that he had promised. That's the history that Paul sort of lays out. That's the foundation that he's now going to build on. Because the next question would be, so what do you do with that? Where do we go from here? And that was the purpose of the second part of Greek oration. So Paul takes advantage of that. Lays the foundation. I imagine some might have been sitting there saying, okay, Paul, where are you going with this? So Paul moves on to the third part of Greek oration, which is something called the propositio. What does that sound like? It's a proposition. At this point, the speaker would give a small summary of what he was going to speak about or address, especially as it related to the foundation that he's just laid down in the narration. He's going to propose something which was intended to now be proven by the speaker. Paul's proposal to his audience at this point was that he and Barnabas were there as messengers of the salvation that God had brought about through Jesus. Look at verse 26. He says, Brethren, sons of Abraham, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, primarily to Paul and to Barnabas, the message of this salvation has been sent. That's his proposition. The message of God's salvation has been given to us. So now, Paul's got to provide the evidence. Where's the evidence of this? Where's the evidence that God has brought salvation and that they are messengers of this salvation? This part of the speech was called the probatio. That's what the Greeks actually use to explain or to provide the evidence now. It's kind of interesting, that word probatio, because you think about probation. What is probation? 
somebody's let out of prison, they're not quite sure yet if they're going to live like they're supposed to, and so it's a period of probation. It's a time of proving. Time of proving that you are now going to be a reputable member of society, that you're not going to commit the crimes again. If you violate that, you go back. So it's a time of providing evidence. So what's the evidence that God sent Jesus as the promised Savior and that Paul and Barnabas were his messengers? Well, he actually provides three evidences here. Look at the first one. The first is that those who killed Jesus fulfilled exactly what the prophet said would happen. Look at um, verses 26 through 28. Brethren, sons of Abraham, Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of the salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets which were read every Sabbath, remember they had already read the prophets in this service as well, these were fulfilled by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. So the first thing that we see, the first bit of evidence that Paul provides here is that the prophets, those who we just read, prophesied that what we saw happen in Jerusalem with this man Jesus was fulfilled, just as it had been prophesied. That's the first bit of evidence. The second evidence was that God then raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verses 29 through 31. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. In other words, the second evidence that Paul shared, that God had brought salvation and that he and Barnabas were witnesses of that and were were declaring that, was that the one that they had put to death God had now raised from the dead. And oh, by the way, there are witnesses. You can see them. You can talk with them. He moves on to a third piece of evidence here. And that's that God fulfilled exactly what he promised. The Jews knew that God was the God who fulfilled his promises. It should be no surprise, no shock, that God did exactly what he said he would do. And that's the third evidence, verses 32 through 37. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But whom God raised, he did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So that last bit of evidence there is that God did exactly what he said he would do. He said it. He did it. That should be all the proof you need. And so Paul does this introduction. He tells them what he's going to preach about. He lays the foundation. Then provides the evidence to prove all of what he had shared so far. The last part of a Greek oration was something called the peroratio. 
which is where they actually exhorted the readers to do something with that information now. This was the point at which they tried to convince them to accept what they were saying and to do something about it. It was a call to action, if you will. It's where they pled with the audience. Look at what Paul does in verses 38 through 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, and here's the charge, take heed so that the things or the things spoken in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So basically what Paul does, he says, don't be like the prophets. You have an opportunity here. So he declares that God is offering them both forgiveness and justification through Jesus. It's through him that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is freed or literally justified from all things. The law could not do that. So he basically exhorts them to heed the warnings of the prophets. Don't be like what the prophets described. We've heard that before. In some of the speech, in the speech uh, I believe one speech by Peter, the scriptures are filled with warnings. And so Paul uses that as his final portion of his sermon to exhort them to do something with what he just said. What do we take away from this? Well, it's actually... I think the first takeaway is that the gospel is not complicated. It's actually relatively simple. God made promises in the Old Testament. God fulfilled those promises. We're expected to do something with it. There's nothing fancy about Paul's speech here, about his sermon, is there? He follows the model of Greek rhetoric because it was something that was effective But there's nothing fancy about it. Here's what God said he would do. Here's what he did. He's now brought this to our attention. We are witnesses for him. Here's the proof. What are you going to do about it? I think the second takeaway is that when Paul shared the gospel, you notice that he kept it simple, but he also relied heavily on God's word. Notice what he did there. He summarized the Old Testament. Then he repeatedly quoted the word. In fact, he quotes from 1 Samuel, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, and Habakkuk. He relied heavily on God's word, whether quoting it directly or even just summarizing the principles found within it. I actually think that's a pretty good model for us. Tell him what God said and why. Tell him what God accomplished through Christ. Use the word to make our case. It's really that simple. I think sometimes we make it really, really complicated, don't we? I'm not a good evangelist. I've found that this is an effective tool, at least in talking to people um, in my work environment. Um, I had a conversation the other day with a man in my office. He's a young guy. He um, coaches lacrosse. For I think either the middle school in Dublin or the high school. Um, his dad's an attorney that they don't work for us, but they rent space from us and they 
they sort of work side by side with us. We're partners, the best way to describe it. And he's a young man. Both of he is he and his dad are both very very conservative. We can talk politics all day long, and his office is right next to mine. And um, so I oftentimes when I'm down there, if he's in there, I'll poke my head in and we'll talk politics and stuff. And I'm always looking for ways to um, introduce biblical principles into that discussion. And so a while back. We were talking about some of what had happened and the stuff we're seeing now with just crazy, crazy nonsense, ignoring science and facts and the political process and stuff. And so I thought, so I said, you know, I got a reason why that happens. And he's like, really, what is it? And I said, well, you know, it's interesting because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that this is the kind of thing we're going to see. And he's like, how so? Now, he's not religious. He calls himself a Christian, but he's admitted, I don't go to church. Um, I have my own beliefs and values. But I then proceeded to say, well, this is what Paul says would happen. And I talked about the way God hands over, hands over, including even the mention of homosexuality. And then the last thing is that God hands him over to a depraved mind, an inability to reason. And he looked at me and went, wow, that kind of explains it, doesn't it? Now, he didn't come to Christ, but I used it as an opportunity summarize what the word says about the current situation, hoping it would open the door up. Well, last week I had another conversation with him. And um, we were talking about just politics in general. I said, you know, politics have a tendency to, to, to wane. I said, that's why oftentimes we see that when a Democrat is elected, oftentimes in the midterm elections, the Republicans kind of surge a little bit, and then vice versa. And I said, part of that is because of the normal cycle of things I said, but part of it too is that um, people have a tendency when things get really bad, to kind of change convictions and, and other things and behave differently. And I said, I got another biblical example of that. And he said, oh, like what? And I said, so I asked him, I said, are you familiar with the book of Judges? And he's like, don't even know what that is. I said, well, here's the thing. And I explained briefly. I said, in the book of Judges, what we see is that every time Israel turned their back on God, things would get really miserable for them because God would bring upon them their enemies. And then they would start whining and complaining, turn their hearts back to God and beg for his help. And so God would send them a deliverer or a judge. And they'd rejoice and things would be really good for a while. But because things are really good, then they'd turn their back on God again. And then it would go again, again, and again. I explained to him, I said, that's the whole book. It's just a spiral of the same thing over and over and over again. And he said, huh, wow, that's interesting too. Kind of explains a lot, doesn't it? And so I came back to his office a little, a little bit later and I said, hey, I want to talk to you briefly here. I said, no, a lot of times when you and I talk, um, I'm not afraid to share my religious convictions and spiritual convictions, and I even oftentimes talk about the word like I did today. And he says, Aha, and I said, Are you okay with that? I said, You always seem okay? Uh, in my mind, I'm planning here. I said, Are you okay with that? He goes, Oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with that at all. He goes, I actually kind of like that about you because you're not afraid. And I said, Well, good. I said, You know, I don't know where you're at spiritually or religiously. I know you were raised in a Methodist home but didn't go to church. I said, Um, do you enjoy talking about spiritual things? I mean, when we when I bring this up, and he's like, actually, I kind of do. I enjoy getting the perspective. I said, I'd, I'd love to just sit and talk to you someday. And he's like, I think I'd like that too. Okay, well, we had already talked about maybe going out for lunch to talk politics. And so I said, well, I said, ah, maybe the next week or two, we'll see about, go out for lunch and we'll talk some politics. And he went, we could talk about some spiritual stuff too. Now, where's he at? I don't know. But I think people sometimes are more open to talk when they don't see it as proselytizing 
But we can't be afraid to use the word because we're told in the scriptures that it's the word that has the power to convict. And I've been looking for opportunities to try to explain what we see going around us by what the word says about it. Instead of just you know trying to get to the get them to their knees and pray the gospel, you know, pray the prayer. I'm, I'm I'll hopefully get there. But the point is that, like Paul, let's tell them what God has done. Let's describe the world around them based on what the Word tells us and what God's solutions are to that and not be afraid to use the Word as we do that. But obviously we need to understand the Word to do that, right? You know? Now, I didn't quote chapter and verse to him. Paul does both. Summarizes the Old Testament principles and, and history, but also quotes chapter and verse. And I think there's value in that. So if you're not good quoting chapter and verse, don't be afraid to talk about the principles. Hey, Paul says this. James says this. I remember this in the Old Testament. God can use that tremendously. And so I think this example we see in Paul is a great example for us to follow ourselves. Let's move on. There's more to the passage this morning. So what happens? Well, we see an interesting response. Let's look at verse 42 and 43. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so what we find is that they're intrigued. They want to know more from the Apostle Paul and from Barnabas. They literally follow them out of the synagogue. You know, they're probably trying to hit lunch, right? But these guys are following them out. And you can just see Paul and Barnabas, you know, moving on their way. And these people are surrounding them. Come back. Teach us more. You're going to still be here next week, right? So they want to know more. They're begging them. These are Jews, the God-fearing Greeks, it appears. Now, it's not really super clear. Are they just interested in hearing more? Or have they been convinced at this point? Not real clear. I would imagine it's a mix. And part of the reason I say that is because when they came back the following week, most of the Jews reject them. They get offended. But many of the Greeks accept it. And so there's probably a mix here. So Paul is urging them to continue in the grace. I think what that references, some say, well, they must be saved or they must have accepted it because Paul's telling them to continue on in the grace of God. Well, no, I think God is saying... You're in a good place. You're showing interest. You want to know more. Don't abandon that. Stay in the grace of God because what? God has given them grace, favor. They're hearing the gospel even though they had rejected everything up to that point. So he's saying, continue on. Continue showing interest. Continue walking in the grace of God. Um, That's my hope with the people that I communicate with at work is that they continue showing interest. God is showing them grace. They have an opportunity to hear the gospel. They might not hear it somewhere else. So I'm hoping to continue to encourage them to remain open, to continue walking in God's grace and goodness. I've already shared that with one individual from down in Dayton when, because we've had a number of conversations and he seems very, very interested, but he's not willing to jump. And so I've encouraged him. I'm like, I think God is using this. I think God's giving you an opportunity here. Don't abandon it. Stay open-minded. Continue in the grace of God. And so Paul encourages them to do that. And like I said, unfortunately, the following week, some do, 
Some don't. What's my takeaway from just those couple of verses there with, with what we see in terms of how they, how they actually respond? I think it's this. I think we have to be kind of careful. Interest is not the same thing as acceptance. I think we have a lot of people that are interested in the gospel. They're interested in spiritual things. That's not the same thing as acceptance. And we see that here because there's a lot of interest, but a week later, some accept and some don't. So many are interested in spiritual things. Many even claim to be religious, claim to like going to church. But interesting is not the same thing as acceptance or commitment. There's a difference. It kind of reminds me of what we see in the Gospels. It's, remember, it's um, reminiscent of the parable of the sower, isn't it? Some hear the Gospel and the devil comes and takes it away. Others receive it with joy. They're all excited, but then affliction and persecution come. They fall away. Others seem to receive it, but ultimately abandon it because of what the world offers them. Call them sellouts, if you want to use that phrase. It's only a few that actually accept. That's the unfortunate thing about the gospel. Jesus said that the way's narrow. But what we've seen as we've walked through Acts here, um, an awful lot of people that reject, but an awful lot of people that accept. The number that accept are probably few in comparison to those who reject. That's the nature of the gospel. But yet, Paul and Barnabas don't get discouraged. Peter didn't get discouraged. Stephen didn't get discouraged even up to the moment of his stoning. I think that needs to be our perspective, too. Um, When I look at this passage as a whole, what I see is that Paul and Barnabas go out on this very difficult journey that costs them energy and time and difficulty and go into a hostile environment in some respects. We'd love to think that these synagogues were welcoming places, but they really weren't. We see how Paul gets kicked out of almost every one he goes into. He knew the pattern, you know. Um, but they didn't get discouraged. They kept their focus on the gospel. They just gave the simple truths of what God has done. We're here to tell you about it. What are you going to do about it? So we get this great example of a model that we can use in our everyday lives. Just Our job is to just kind of tell people what God has done. Help them understand it. Don't have to be fancy or creative necessarily. Paul just used the communication model of his day. That's all he did. We do too. What's our, for most of us, what's our conversation model? Just chatting, talking to friends, family, coworkers about life, about politics, about things. Find ways that we can insert into that discussion God's perspective on it. We are living in a world today that is really messed up and hurting that is very different than many times prior to this. We've always had things in history. Um, think about the times of World War II and stuff like that. I mean, you just you know people are hurting, right? We're in a place like that right now. With the confusion, the anger, the animosity, the frustration, the fear, the panic. 
as we talk, let's find ways to tell them what God says, what God has done, where hope lies. Use the word, biblical principles, to help understand people understand and describe it. Some will reject it. Some may go, huh, can we do lunch? Ah, we can talk about that. Sound good? So I love this passage because, again, it's, there's some technical stuff, some academic stuff that you'll probably forget. But the primary point is that Paul gives us this great example of, of how we can use the gospel to communicate, or how we can use the word and how we can use you know, things like this just to communicate the gospel effectively to people. And it's really ultimately what we're called to do. We may not all be evangelists at gifting, but we're all witnesses. Are we not?